welcome back to the Seek Strand podcast. Uh, this week brought to you by the the sound of Gurf drinking from his water bottle. Aggressively drinking. Aggressively. It was such a rush as well. I was like, I'm recording. And then straight away grabs his fucking, what kind of water bottle is that? Uh, <clears throat> I don't know. Really got me that's one of those, um, that's one of those, I don't use single use water bottles. Bottles. No. That's what <laughs> this it is, is like. Your missus gets you one because you keep using her fancy my protein stainless steel one and she was like i'm gonna get you a water bottle and i was like no i like this one and she was like i bought that for myself yeah so she she got me this systema one they're like the um they're the uh they're not the alico water bottles they're more like the uh what would you call titan row pro fitness 9000 you know that <laughs> generic brand you know they get the job done though the apollo bear yeah they're the apollo of barbells but of water bottles essentially uh, for anyone who's wondering, the... Apollo seem to be one of the only companies that actually have plates in stock. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, or they're coming in in February or something. I was just looking for one of our one of our Sika one to ones. Uh, today on the podcast, we're going to be talking about basically science and sports and like the interaction and intersection of science uh, with high performance sport or even medium performance sport. I think it's something that in the last like definitely in the last 10 years with wearable trackers everybody seems to be on that where they're needing to track everything they want metrics uh look we're the first people to be like you need intelligent programming you need intelligent coaching you need to be smart about your exercise selection you need to track things you need to reflect upon things what worked what didn't work but there's definitely positives and negatives uh to like bringing in too much high level science into sport and i think probably the first group we can talk about is like the your average gym enthusiast or like your average crossfitter and where they start looking for like science or where they start looking for additional data uh, and where it may be good and where it may be bad i think um the biggest thing with science though in sport is often that it turns people off like you say it's almost kind of like um you're a dark you know like or it's kind of you know you're not out here in the trenches training uh mma fighters you know <laughs> people like i don't care what science says um yeah. that's the thing they would say you know that's a it's kind of a quote you would hear like mac episode there in the video a few weeks ago saying uh, <laughs> i don't care he said the phenomenology needs to match the uh whatever we do you know or something like that yeah. was, i don't know it didn't even make sense what he was saying he was like the sports science you know whatever they say is wrong if it doesn't match up um, which will tell you all you need to know basically about Mark Ripto essentially. Yeah. Uh, but it is a phenomenon that people go as soon as you say, look, a lot of the papers say this and they're like, that doesn't match up. You know, that's not what we're doing. Um, people get incredibly, and we have that here in, in Ireland, but for example, we we're going to talk about last night about um, Gaelic football, for example, you know, Dublin, uh, for anyone basically, uh, Gaelic football, there's a league, uh, Dublin won it six times in a row now, is it? I think it is six, yeah. Five or six times around. We're not massive guy heads, to be honest. Um, there might be a few people listening who are, but essentially this team has won the league championship Ireland multiple times in a row now, formerly from a sport which would have been heavily based off individual player skill, um, not from any massive support system from the county teams. So basically what Dublin have done, uh, obviously they have a larger population than any three, four or five counties combined, but um, they basically just treated their athletes like and here's the shocking part like athletes uh, which is Mental. crazy and they approach their training with somewhat of a systematic approach by the sounds of things or at least somewhere at any kind of approach like they approach you with some kind of approach they have a plan and not just run people into the ground by the sounds of things and you know the lot the rest of the counties aren't catching up they will slowly eventually i'd imagine but it's it's common across all sports you know where science is like what's the science no they're not training athletes you know yeah um like we get it in our Anthony Joshua video or something like that, you know, like how do two guys out of shape, you know, even uh, talk about someone like him, you know, why aren't you training them? And as I said, you can say Fitz is not in shape, but I'm in great shape. <laughs> <laughs> but on the, on the GA side of things, um, like you'll hear all these things about like, it's the money that Dublin have. So Dublin have more money than other counties. It's the population, like definitely population has a huge effect money definitely has a huge effect you'll hear things like oh they're all on gear mm-hmm. oh, fuck it dublin players aren't on any more or less gear than any other counties players in my opinion you know um but what you have in dublin that you don't have or sorry 
yeah, what you have in Dublin that you don't have in other counties is actual subject matter experts dealing with that subject matter. So you have strength and conditioning coaches who are strength and conditioning coaches and hired on the merit of their strength and conditioning ability versus other counties where it's like, oh, this guy was the physiotherapist for the last five years. He's not going to be the physiotherapist anymore because he's not good at being a physiotherapist. Mm-hmm. But now he's going to be our strength and conditioning coach. Like, the politics and the... Not to sound crude, right? Because old guys are what make a lot of these sporting organizations go around. But the fucking old grumpy guy who controls some of the budget or the old grumpy guy who is in charge of picking some part of backroom staff, that's what negatively affects most of the GA. And when you look at a lot of intercounty teams, like they have huge amounts of player talent, huge amount of player commitment. And we know, uh, like we can name three teams that we've seen senior intercounty training sessions of where it is absolutely fucking appalling what they do. Like... Their, their gym program looks like the gym program that comes stuck on the side of, like, you know, on the lat pull-down machines where there's, like, mm-hmm. a mm-hmm. a program on it for, like, this is how you target your biceps. And this is, like, that's what their gym programs are. And it's not that, in my opinion, like, we're not going to spend too long on this. It's not that my opinion is that Dublin are doing anything radical. Like, Dublin are doing what 16-year-old rugby players will do in a sub-sub-academy setup. And they're and they're suddenly blown out of the water as being like these fucking experts. But um, I think I think it's the problem, you know, when when say that, for example, that grumpy old man, that kind of that sort of person here. It's not that they don't like science. I think the real problem is they don't like academics. They don't like people who are, and that's academics' fault too, because a lot of them are smarmy cunts. Like a lot but, of them, yeah. <laughs> they are. To be fair, you know, you get people who aren't good at delivering a message of what they're doing. Like the information is information. Like if the information is correct in a way, it's correct regardless of, you know, whatever people's views or opinions are on it. Like if something definitively changes something and it's been proven enough times via scientific methods, then it is correct. You know, there's nothing, no, no opinion <clears throat> makes a difference to that, you know? So I think what the problem is a lot of times is, and it's just across a lot of sports and you see it a lot is especially um, obviously non-strength based sports. So any kind of sport, you know, a lot of time, um people will be like oh science doesn't know you know they're not training athletes i don't care what the science says they're all dorks in university like they don't understand things you know but a lot of times people just it's kind of an insecurity thing of being they're not academics you know they're they're just coaching people and i think they kind of get a little bit of a little bit of a get their back up they get kind of defensive when they hear that but if you look at for example the soviets figured it out what are we 20 so about 70 years ago they realized you need a system in place to develop athletes and then ran with it for about 50 odd years you know you've got to have a system you've got to have a scientific approach to things that doesn't mean you just go by what the study says you know there is an art and science to coaching like you need both of them you need an an implication like so you could just get the data you know we do those pay-per-views every monday and you see them and the the practical applications the results so if you just look at those results you get from them they don't make a program. They don't make you a coach. They don't give you the ability to coach people. You don't just get an athlete and then you don't input the program that they use and you need to get a successful athlete. Like you need an art to coaching. You need to develop a method of how you apply it, like how you apply the plaster and the fucking mortar and your chisel away at the marble. Like you need a bit of both, you know. Whereas I think part of that too, from those kind of coaches who get their back up about it is they, is they, they assume then that the science will just replace everything they're doing in some ways and they're, it's kind of demeaning coaching. When it's not really, you just needed a combination of both of them. And and that's it. It's it's within that combination that like the beauty of it lies. Because there's definitely science people that get their back up. Like we know a few of them. Like people oh, sorry, who are yeah, that's very true actually. Heavily entrenched in, in academia and and they'll get their back up because uh like why are you doing that accessory work? Like mm-hmm. why is that accessory work there? Like is is it just to make people feel better? Like um because there's not necessarily a scientific paper there to back it up like and then it goes the same way with coaching where coaching people are like oh would you stop talking about this paper we tried that for four weeks and it didn't work or mm-hmm. would you stop like those lads spend more times fucking stretching than they do actually training you know and i mm-hmm. think so like look at the second instance of that first 
where we talk about coaches getting their back up over scientific methods or the impl or the uh fucking vice versa that's actually a great point you I, know, I, I, yeah i should have met yeah that is actually a very good point i didn't think of that a second ago like it's it works both ways like it's uh you get academics and it annoys me it actually annoys me more than coaches getting their back up from the scientific perspective the, the other smarmy academic cons it just annoys me more than anything because they're more prolific like they're more often the ones on youtube podcasts you know talking ragging on people we're we're the people who make you know when we make those snc coaches react videos like we're actively trying not to be cunts to people we don't call coaches out uh i know people ask us in the comments there's always you know name me a particular coach like you should do a video on him but we're not there to rag on people. We're just there to use oh. what they're doing and why it doesn't make sense and why it might make sense, you know, what they're doing. That's what we're trying to do. Whereas people then get, you know, academics then when they kind of harshly judge people because they haven't studied any literature, you know. And just to point out, just because they have doesn't mean they're correct either. No. And that's when you look at, like, the coaches going the opposite direction then, you know. Science isn't there to push an agenda. So when somebody does a study talking about, okay, they do a study on blood flow restriction training, right? And you as a advisor to a coach say, look, if somebody's trying to get some muscular hypertrophy in a specific area, maybe try blood flow restriction training. That scientific study wasn't done so you can then go and take it and do it. Like the, the art of coaching is you being able to identify this thing over here that was done, like this study that was done, and then say, okay, look, there's there's aspects of this weren't great. There's things within the method that we can transfer over so we can take some of their session, but that probably won't fit with a weightlifter or that might fit better with a, a sprinter. Uh, applying that to coaching and practical coaching then is, is like the true art of this kind of uh, evidence-based or pracademic is what some of them will call themselves uh but it, it's it's definitely not like you can't be just team science and you can't be just team coaching it's somewhere in between lies yeah. the, the kind of butter zone and that's where you see like the most effective coaches tend to be somewhere in between or like a lot of the kind of more modern like in inverted commas modern coaches seem to lie within that like that intersection of science and coaching they're not afraid to bring new things on but they're also not afraid to back themselves the, the irony of that though is you know you you say modern and you gave it bunny ears there but it, it it wasn't joking like when the soviets in the 50 were like oh we need to have both of these like they they didn't like you say the modern coach is like well read but he's also practical application that's what those former soviet coaches would have been that's why they were yeah. so socialistic sports because they were very practical but then they also used the science because they were lashing through scientific studies at an insane rate, you know, with complete disregard for the participants and athletes who were doing <laughs> the studies, but they had so much metrics and data. But I think, like, if you were to pick one of the two, more often than not, the coach who's done more coaching will often end up, so if you had an academic for 10 years and a coach for 10 years, the likelihood is the coach who was just coaching without actually being well read will probably end up with better just by default as yeah. by trial and error like he will learn what works best he might not necessarily understand why he works best he may not even have a great template of why that but he might just have the or you probably have that template but he won't really have a great application for it so you might apply that for 10 different athletes and it might work great for five of them and it might work terrible for the other five whereas the academic then may have never had an application may have never done it but he may in theory know it but then when it comes to actually applying it to you know you could spend five years and, and you've spent four years with people, tens of people who've studied sports science. But if you had to go into a room full of, you know, 15, 18 year old rugby players and you understand the physics and biomechanics of rugby, for example, and the theoretical knowledge of training, but it, it, it's a lot to go from knowing the program to getting those lads to do that, you know, to getting to do what they need to do and being consistent and then adapting to it over fucking 16 week off season in the summer. Yeah. I think the, the other thing as well is like, a lot of coaching and a lot of training is about just more than seeking like physiological adaptation. It's more than making bigger, stronger, faster, more resilient injury athletes. Like a lot of it is firstly, when someone comes into the role, they have to have to prove their worthiness in some way or prove their efficacy as a coach. 
So if they're coming on as an SNC coach into a, a structure or an SNC coach with a team or a fucking skills coach with a team, they're immediately under some form of time pressure, right? So they usually reach for the low-hanging fruit. For a lot of teams, low-hanging fruit is something you're going to be able to easily see a change in before and after. So usually they go to make people alter their body weight or alter their body composition. So you'll see like a new coach coming in and doing shitloads of aerobic conditioning and shitloads of cardio work with a team. And then they're like, oh, all the athletes are really fucking slimmed down. They look great. They feel different. Even though in terms of sports performance, it mightn't be ideal. Or else they'll they'll prove their worth in some other way. You know, they'll they'll really try and alter the the thought process behind an athlete when they're in the gym or something like that. I think the important thing, if you're somebody in one of these structures or within one of these teams, is that you give the coach some sort of credence and say, look, we're not looking for you to prove yourself, right? You've been hired for this role or you've been accepted in this role or we've asked you to come on board for this role because we understand you know what you're doing and you don't need to spend, you don't need to worry for the first three months or the first season you're here that we value you. You know, and I, I think that is where a lot of coaches will come into a team, they'll have loads of good ideas, and then they'll hear one or two kind of remarks from the coaching staff being like, they're always inside in that fucking gym. They're always, they haven't run a single 400 yet. They're always doing those short sprints, you know? Mm-hmm. And that, like, it takes away from the efficacy of a coach, and it takes away from the efficacy of the manager being a good manager, the players being a good player, because you've kind of put reins on this, coach to be like you need we need to see efficacy right now even though they won't say it would you say of all the um the pay-per-views we've done would you have taken any from those would you've gone you know i might use something from that um i don't know as a coach i think in terms of like somebody who's interested in in reading papers i definitely have you know like the hmb paper is an example of that where i'm like i've always discredited hmb we have a buddy who was doing some PhD work on HMB and I was like, Jesus, like anytime I spoke to him, there doesn't seem to be much going on there. And then you see some of the results and look, look, the paper is inconclusive. The paper is negative towards HMB, but I'm thinking, is there something here? Is there something with the application of HMB that could work? Uh, I think there's other, to be honest, a lot of those papers are papers we ourselves would have dealt with or seen similar papers to that in the past. <clears throat> Like I can't think yep. of an actual example. Can you? The I think the cluster sets is probably the most interesting ones because we saw it multiple times. Yeah, and its outcome. But as of yet, I haven't. I suppose I don't really like you deal with all the the athletes, kind of sport athletes, like so. Basically, weightlifters and people. Yeah, uh, powerlifters is what I'm dealing with. So, really giving it to anyone. Uh, I don't think I've given the cluster sets to anyone as of yet. I, I don't think this. Well, like the cluster set's a good example because yeah. I have a good few people now who cluster sets might be a thing for, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and like even advising other people, like every rugby player in the world is in a fucking off season at the moment. Uh, but advising other people on, on the use of cluster sets, I haven't prescribed them yet. I haven't ever really prescribed them. And it's more than the reason of just like, it's fairly cumbersome unless you've a clock in front of an athlete or a coach there with them telling them how long to rest in between. But it's also cumbersome in, in the efficiency of a training session overall. Like we we don't have the luxury of having athletes who have nothing else going on. Like our ideal scenario at the moment with athletes is that they're in college and that they have a fair bit of time around, but most of them are working. So if I'm telling someone to do a power clean and then wait 15 seconds and then do a power clean and then wait 15 seconds and they're doing a total of five reps in a set or four reps in a set, I've then gone from something that takes 20 seconds to something that takes a minute or a minute and 15 seconds. And then if they're doing five to eight sets of that, we've really, really prolonged the amount of time they're doing power cleans for in a session. And I just don't want them in the gym that long. I think the um, the steering of the ship takes a lot longer. Yeah. You know, it's very rare you'd see one study and you think that's fucking incredibly useful. I'm going to use that. Whereas you might be, you might be waiting five years for one scenario where you would apply that useful thing. Like if you talk about like the blood flow restriction or 
the cluster sets, you know, it's useful to kind of bank all of the knowledge, you know, to accrue all of that together in one place, but you might not really change much what you're doing, you know, so people, you know, might have the, the opinion that you just, you know, you read papers all day and then you'd get information from them and then you'd apply them to your training, you know, and that kind of brings down to a point of like misapplication of information you would learn from, you know, academic or literature or, you know, sports journals or science, sports science journals. Like it's very easy to be over analytical of people's training and misapply a lot of the principles you would learn. So if you were to, you know, go back over, for example, all our paper reviews, you would be giving people as much creating cream as you could <laughs> probably be doing a lot of blood flow restriction training in cluster sets for sets of like 15 to 30 reps. You, you know, you'd, you could very easily fall away from the basics, you know? Yeah. Um, see the problem with the basics then essentially is that it's not incredibly, it, it's kind of all encompassing yeah in terms of so it's near impossible to design a study from that or like if you for example you know no one's really done like we haven't really seen a, like a randomized control study where people they got rugby players and they had them doing you know dips pull-ups squats uh lunges and benching or something like that and then followed them for five years as opposed to a group who did you know uh assisted sprints with blood flow restricted squats you know you don't see that you know so it's very hard to kind of validate the basics so a lot of that doesn't change like the vast majority of what you do is what it is you know i suppose Mm -hmm. i think when you look at papers that that would have okay there's an example of a paper right that for me is like so fucking valuable i can't walk away from it and i can't say like okay maybe this doesn't um like I, I can't take it out of my brain right so there's an example it, it's like a u.s postal study uh and not u.s postal as in the cycling team u.s postal as in postmen and i think it was in chicago or boston maybe in the 70s or 80s i should probably have more information on the study and they basically compared lifelong like they take data from them for the, like as long as they're working within the postal service and then all the way into retirement until they die and they looked at the difference between postmen who drove a van and postmen who were cycling or walking. And the postmen who drove a van were like orders of magnitude more likely to die earlier and to die of cardiovascular related conditions. So then you look at that and you say like, okay, if someone has a job for their physically active or somebody's physically active every day, they're just going to be so much healthier. And that's something that like you can't, it's like, fucking thousands of people within the study they're studied for 40 plus years and they're getting actual data like every time they go back to a doctor it's a government mandated u.s postal doctor everything is recorded it is a legitimately one of the like one of the heaviest studies that you could weigh down upon physical activity and it's like i can't get that in my head and basically what i'm saying is like i haven't seen anything like that for coaching or that i apply in my own coaching where i'd be like fuck nobody's ever doing four reps again because four reps is the worst number ever yeah and you can kind of see on that kind of you know if you look at like the hypertrophy training kind of circle on you know social media or whatever that they're really they're in like a phase where they're heavily looking for validated scientific methods for hypertrophy training and they're really, really trying very hard to get them, you know, and who's the first to have the most scientific method or who has the most validated method and, you know, who's got the most literature to show or like who's got more studies cited for what's effective. Uh, but the the principles are the same. Like it's still essentially progressive overload for hypertrophy training as it would be for strength training. And the funny thing is, is those guys are experts, you know. Like, mm-hmm. so I, I assume you're talking about Mark, uh, our fucking... Oh, any of them, like yeah, Mike yeah. Isdell, Eric Helms, Mike Isdell, fucking sorry. Jeff Nippard, so, name your, pick your, take your pick, like. You know, when they have the super debates, and it's mm-hmm. like fucking, like, I used to, the super debates a while ago were a big thing with, a like. A round table. A round table. No, but they used to have, like, the, it would be like a boxing match, and you'd, yeah. like, tune in to see it. So, like, they used to be around in, like, 12, 13, 14, uh, 2012, 13, and 14, where it would be, like, calories in versus calories out on one team and then the other team would be like fucking paleo or like one of those you know they were great arguments because it's like these people fundamentally disagree with each other they have differing views everything is different they they 
believe pathways operate differently within the body. The hypertrophy stuff at the moment for me, and I've looked at a fair whack of it, seems to be volume versus intensity. And that's like Mm -hmm. one team or volume, one team is intensity. And they have the only difference in their views is the fucking volume versus... So it's like loading versus uh, volume loading. How many reps from failure, basically. How Yeah, how important that is. Everything yeah. else, everything else involved in the whole thing of building muscle is the same. They all agree on recovery. They all agree on nutrition. They all agree on drugs, more than likely. They all agree on what movements and exercise selection they should have. The one thing they don't agree on is the number that goes before the X and the number that goes after the X, whether it's like fucking one by 20 or fucking five by four, like, you know. Or they're they're like, ten sets a week. That's ridiculous. (laughs) Everyone should do ten sets a week. You're ridiculous. You know, they get really. um, The funniest part is, you know, and it is to um, not to dissuade some of their hard work or whatever. But, you know, you mentioned drugs there, you know, so a lot of those lads, a lot of those experts are on drugs, you know, and, and they're open about it, too. It's not yeah. calling anyone out like they're fairly open about that. And, um, you know, how much training and what training you're doing is the least important thing they're doing for hypertrophy training right there. So it's their nutrition, the drugs they're taking and then the training. Yeah. In that because, order. Like anecdotally, like because if you look at how dumb some of the ex pros like Dorian Yates talking about their training and all their stuff now. Like they were like, yeah, I trained once a week for 15 minutes, like, you know, stay super shit like that. And like, so you might be like, oh, well, he's wrong. But you're also like, he got where he was doing that, you know. So but how much does it really matter? Like, does it matter for most people watching those lads? They're not on gear, like they're not taking stuff. Yeah. So they don't like, unless they have the basics down. And I'm sure maybe, maybe it's just very interesting to listen to for people who are interested in hypertrophy training. Maybe they enjoy listening to those subjects and that's fucking totally fine. But, you know, if you're listening, does it really matter, you know, if um, like uh, who's going to implement the system there where they're going to go, you know, four reps from failure and then next you go three reps from failure and then two reps from failure. People just don't do that. You know, that's not what people do. And then a lot of the lads telling them are on drugs, you know, so it's kind of a it's a funny like kind of fucking discord between them. Yeah, I like the the thing I always compare it to is like Tommy Tiernan, the Irish comedian, has a sketch or he had one years ago where they'd be talking about uh a Catholic marrying a Protestant in Ireland and uh, they're talking about the church and like this being like a fucking uh, uh, a split wedding, you know, that like one side of the church is like Catholic and the other one's Protestant and like the only real difference between them is they say two lines extra at the end of one prayer, but there's no difference. They all look the same. They all talk the same. He was like, the difference, like a real split wedding is like one side of the arena or one side of the church is like uh Arab people shooting AK-47s in the sky and the other side of the church is like Zulu warriors with shields and banging their spears against them, you know? Like, that's all I can compare those arguments to because they agree on everything except this tiny little thing that probably isn't that important. And it's not only is it not that important, but the way they're applying it when they're heavily juiced and training full-time and, like, being professional athletes doesn't Mm -hmm. really apply to the normal person. So, like... The standard person buying a renaissance periodization program won't see a huge difference if they have slightly higher intensity and slightly lower volume or like in my opinion they won't anyway they'll get they'll get 85 percent of the efficacy from just going and training consistently with that exercise yeah. selection at a fairly high volume and fairly high intensity yeah like 90 odd percent of the difference comes from the fact that they're training you yeah. know it's not should you train or not should you train it's like should you do maybe 20 extra reps a week compared to this person or should you do 10% less reps than this person? You know, the, the, the nuances they're talking about is insane and it is, it's massive, you know, um, they've made a lot of it, I suppose, but, but people do seem to want to listen to that for hypertrophy training. And it really is a segmented circle in terms of the, the kind of spheres, I suppose, like it's very segmented from say sports science and, not sports science, but from kind of what we'd be dealing with, like performance and strength training. Like, it, it's very, very separate. Like, they're very, very separate kind of groups of people, I would suppose. Yeah. Like, I have an opinion on the reason hypertrophy stuff is so divisive. Um, and it's the reason we don't see it in pure strength work or the reason we don't see it in pure, like, mobility and stability work is a great example, right? 
Squat University doesn't deviate hugely from what Kelly Storetta said. And the Romwad workouts don't deviate hugely from what fucking Squat University... You know, they all tend to sing off the same hymn sheet. They find these things to be effective because there's a test-retest model. You can usually see a difference from one session to another or from the start of a session to the end of a session right it's very easy if i have tight lats and i stretch out a small bit and then suddenly my elbows come up higher in the front squat that's simple to see in my opinion the reason we see it so much in the hypertrophy circle is hypertrophy takes a long fucking time right and muscle protein synthesis takes fucking ages so even though somebody will go to the gym and they'll get a pump and they'll be like holy shit i look jacked they probably haven't gained any muscle and the amount of time it takes like we spoke to Broderick about this like someone could train for fucking 20 years and put on 10 or 15 kilos of legit muscle and they'll have done very well the reason I think it's so fucking divisive is because someone then hops on gear and within six months they've gained what somebody else will do in 20 years and people don't realize that that's happening like the people who these videos are being marketed towards the people who are buying the products they're buying don't realize that like this is what causes it this is like everyone can go to the gym and put on some muscle by just training hard but when you see these like my kids are telling in sick shape right but he's still not even in as good shape as like jared feather or whatever that guy's name is like people get so divisive over it and be like oh well look at how good like kids obviously has good genes but uh maybe it's this kind of training or they go to complete failure on whatever exercise I think the reason is just so many people are being fucking lied to and even the people who are doing the lying don't realize they're lying because they forget how fucking effective drugs are. Yeah, they, they all like all the lads talking about the differences are all in great shape. Like yeah. they all look good, like from the outside. They all look, they're all huge and ripped. Like they're all fucking absolutely yoked. Like they, there isn't them. Um, they're all like if that fucking like, like Greg Duchette there or... Yeah. Um, like Atlean X or whatever, or you take Mike or, or his friend Jared Feder or whatever, or if you take um, fucking name any, insert any of them, and they're they're all just massive, like, and they're all really lean, like, you know, somebody's wrong, like, but everybody's in great shape, so who's wrong? You know, that's the way they argue with each other about that, you know. If if somebody was showing up to those round tables, right, and they were in fucking. They were in the same shape as we, and I was like, this is how you get giant and jacked and ripped. <laughs> and, I, and I was looking at that from the outside and be like, uh, what's the, right what like. the fella Fitzy do? What does that go do? All right, we're not going to do that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, like they're, they're all in great shape. They all train loads of athletes who are in great shape. They're yeah. all doing the same thing, basically, but their opinions differ very, very slightly. I suppose that's the intersection of kind of people are very passionate about something and yeah. then... They want to be the most for a long time too for hypertrophy training wasn't scientific it wasn't in any way academic it was incredibly haphazard <laughs> if anyone read t-nation approximately 10 15 20 years ago you'll know how not scientific hypertrophy training getting better shape was and how muddy the waters where you were and how much people shook up the waters and sucked their foot in and shook a shaker like a, a stick around to muddy the waters further you know to seem different from everyone else so now a lot of the obvious stuff is out of the way or a lot of the kind of the base stuff is out of the way. There's still a lot of, like if you go back to kind of strength uh, S&C circles or performance circles, um, a lot of people just don't get the basics. They don't get it right. Art, if you're all art or all science or if you're or a bit of both, a lot of people just are wrong about stuff. Like they don't do the correct stuff and I know that sounds kind of smarmy, but it's the truth. Like a lot of people are, like wait at me for example, so if you, if you, aside from, you know, actually you can include international coaches. So if you were to remove drugs from international coaches, and I hope this doesn't come across as, if you know this in the podcast the last, they would know that we are not um, anti-drugs in any way. And we don't dissuade people from, you know, you're not a terrible person if you use drugs. But if you were, for example, Nisa talked about going to Uzbekistan there and they wanted to learn from the Uzbekistani weightlifters because they've got a lot of good weightlifters, a lot of very good weightlifters. And, they were like, yeah, we didn't really learn anything. Yeah. So a lot of people, they're just wrong about stuff. And I don't know how else to put that. A lot of people are just shit at coaching. You know, I don't know why people think you would be because you like something or you want to be that something. So moving away from the international coaches now. So, you know, people becoming a PT or people, 
being weightlifting just because you did weightlifting for 15 years doesn't mean you're going to be a good coach you know it doesn't mean it means nothing i don't think i'm yeah. going to be a fucking nasa engineer you know because i like watching the rocket ships like i don't know why people think that i don't know and people i don't know why coaching gets that kind of um i don't know why it gets that kind of leeway for people to think that you can just be a good coach because you like it you know it doesn't make any sense i like listening to guitar i love heavy metal music i can't play a guitar like i don't know why i don't think i would could be a rock star i don't think i'm going to do a fucking weekend course and something it doesn't make sense to me like it actually fucking really annoys me sometimes you know it's so strange like and um are like people there like when a pharmaceutical industry there's people who are absolute geniuses you know absolute just some of the smartest people i've ever met in my life and then you see people talking about uh, what's in the vaccine and they're not going to take the vaccine. And you're, you know, you're like, you just g- give people the credit for what they're experts in. You know, you 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 go make your own vaccine. So, buddy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's it's very funny, I think, when the, um, the, the discrepancy people have. And I think for some reason, sports gets um, even more of a, even more leeway again for people just to be an expert in this, you know. And I think the reason that happens is like you have the the classic like catch 22 of good athlete good coach or like good coach then good athlete like mm-hmm. it just so happens that like somebody can identify a talented athlete when they're younger they'll start developing them into better athletes as they're in like 14 15 16 they will draw in more athletes as that's happening because they're going to bigger competitions then they get two or three good senior level athletes and now they're the expert you know Like, they've Mm -hmm. obviously done a lot of work to develop that athlete. They've obviously been there a long time. Uh, That athlete could have been training in their shed. Like, that athlete could be Clarence, right? The most fucking Mm -hmm. talented athlete in the world. The coach could have done nothing. Yet, this coach is now, like, the coach. You know, like, they're the coach. They're in Eastern Europe. This is the coach now. This is the coach that the EWF will fly into your country and, and give coaching seminars. And it's all, like that's the same coach who'll tell people to push their knees together as they're standing up out of a squat to make them faster. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. like, and we're not taking the piss on that. Like, that's an actual no, that's thing. A, yeah. And people yeah. will go to that country and do training camps there. And then you'll hear and you'll see, like, the interaction of programming and you're like, what the fuck happened here? How do they have these four athletes? Yeah. You know, like, did these four athletes all come together in, like, through some way that worked out being very good? Uh, or are these coaching methods like in some way are they telling other athletes from different countries to do this because they think it will make them worse and they won't be like is it some sort of like clandestine like sabotage movement uh yeah. to, to tell, tell people they should round their back when they pull like you know it's it just makes no sense and the, the problem then is like what is a good coach you know what is who is like how do you define a good coach and it's i but Warren, there's a lot more bad coaches out there than there was good coaches, you know. Yeah, it's um, it's a funny mark, like it's a funny career, like it's a funny place to be, you know. Um, because, for example, a doctor, you know, goes is well educated, and they are, you know, they're kind of filtered out. Like you, most of the time, you can be fairly sure that your doctor is probably a good doctor if he ended up being a doctor. But there's no process like that for being a coach for anything. Like even for those lads, like if you take international weightlifting coaches or something like that, there's no process for them to be most of the time. So some of them, I know um, some of the university, they'll have like uh, weightlifting master's degrees and stuff like that in, in Russia or whatever. But, you know, like say, for example, that coach in Uzbekistan, like he, he how did he end up where he was, you know, given the corruption, um, you know. And then there is kind of an argument then, just as we're on a huge tangent anyway, like an argument on being, you know how much better does like how much does drugs make up for bad coaching you know there's a like how much of a deficit does that bring up like that's the question well as around this right it's i don't think it might even be making up for a deficit right it might be a, a fairly good coach but it might be a phenomenal ability to manipulate compounds and a phenomenal mm-hmm. ability to program training along with programming your drugs like Everyone knows how important that is, you know. Everyone knows how important it would be if you could take drugs two months longer before having to come off or two months closer to the competition before having to take steps to pass a test. Like, they mightn't be great in terms of programming volume 
or programming mm-hmm. training or frequency or how they coach or their cues or whatever it is that all, all those things that come into coaching but they might understand the pharmacology incredibly well and then look is a coach does a coach have to be really good at all this yeah or can a coach just get victories and then they're a great mm-hmm. coach you know like that's that's the other thing like what do you want in your coach do you want somebody who's going to make you win yeah or do you want somebody who'll develop an athlete or like grow an athlete and make you a better person for them like being a coach is winning gold medals at the olympics like that's the yeah. that's the ultimate goal that's what defines a good coach you know that is what it is you know you win a medal you're a good coach like that is and i, and I agree with that the criteria because that's their job like they're sent there to they're like okay we need medals for the country that's your only job in life your job is not to be nice to these athletes you know it's not to make them feel happy it's not to be the most technical or expertise or you know the most fucking scientific coach possible you just need to win medals for the country that's your yeah. job you know and there's ways and means of doing that and there's because they use drugs make them a bad coach then yeah that's like that is the question i think we should probably go back more towards general populations now though and talk yeah. about like the people who are listening to this podcast what science or the intersection of science and sport kind of means for you and i think like going back to that general like if we go back to somebody now who's strength training so they're doing some sort of weightlifting or powerlifting uh there's a few newer things that are coming on or that are becoming more common in gym training so uh speed tracking tracking of speed or acceleration of a barbell tracking of speed or acceleration as you're running and these things are things where people can get a lot of value from them but they can also mm-hmm. get kind of caught up in the details and it's like that paralysis to analysis again of like somebody puts a bar speed tracker on for when they're back squatting and then suddenly they say like okay i did five by five at 130 last week i'm doing five by five at 140 this week and the last set of 140 is way slower than what 130 was last week i think this is where people kind of get lost or they get kind of they just the water is muddied by them so progressive overload is the most important thing and tracking other variables like speed or acceleration can be really nice if you're trying to focus on speed or acceleration but if you're squatting to get better at squatting or squatting to get stronger in like a strength phase or a an off-season block you probably shouldn't be worrying about speed too much that was actually the metrics i kind of forgot about say of like the paper reviews we've done the bar speed velocity but again i suppose i haven't used that with anyone i haven't got anyone to use a bar speed um like if you look at metrics you know and, and kind of if we take like scientific tools uh for my weightlifters like i will routinely will use a bar pass tracker so maybe once every uh maybe once a month if i feel like it needs it like i'll get a side on view of something and i'll look at it um that is most of the people have the same issues with the bar pad or whatever but when we look at it and then we'll try to adjust something and I'll tell them what we're trying to adjust and then we'll go about trying to fix that. But, you know, we won't use it consistently. We won't use it every session, every day. We won't look at every set. So we're like, check, recheck. But like the check, recheck could be a month in between or two or three weeks in between of, of trying to adjust things, you know? And then we'll kind of apply then the quote unquote, the art of coaching, you know? So you can tell someone they have a bad bar pat and you can show them that. But in getting from the bad bar path to a good bar path isn't as simple as saying, okay, you need to make that line better. You know, like you need, there's something in the middle then for changing them over. You know, you need to, how do you kind of shimmy that athlete along to getting a better bar path, you know? And I will play, I'll actually make a video at some point about why the S bar path makes the most sense in terms of, you know, physics or whatever, but it's a good example for a lot of people listening. Um, it, you don't see this much in powerlifting, for example, but you know, the, the bar path tracker, it's no good knowing what the best bar pad is and knowing what your bar pad is if you can't go from one to the other. And you can record every single set and try and adjust it. And weirdly enough, there's ways where you can kind of manipulate your lift where you would have a better bar pad, but not a better lift. You know, so it's... It, it, the intersection really is... It does take a bit of experience and, you know, uh, a bit of intelligence too. Yeah. It, it, it goes without saying, like, that you need someone who's um, who has the... The ability to apply thought processes to something like for example another good example is if you record uh total tonnage and weight of things so a lot of um eastern european former soviet, soviet countries will record or would have recorded total tonnage in training but the problem with total tonnage by itself is um 
it can be incredibly misleading. So if you were to apply like the principles of progressive overload to total tonnage, and uh, part of just can kind of vibe with this too, you would kind of assume, so I need to lift more total tonnage, essentially per session. So the number of reps by the amount of weight gives you thousands of kilograms. And so do I try and lift more every session and keep lifting more? Like, will that, will that work? So if I just, the metrics all I'm looking for is total tonnage. But unfortunately, in weightlifting, for example, that's a terrible metric and you can really skew those metrics. So if you were to do something like, um, I had a really good session. I was just looking at my total tonnage there for training, right? So at one session where I did hang power cleans and full back squat, and then, so you'd kind of call that like a a very, very low specific weightlifting day versus a day where I was doing snatches, clean and jerks, and clean pulls, so above the knee or whatever. And the total tonnage was... um, I think the snatch day was like three and a half, but then the back squat day was like five and a half. So we had like 2,000, two ton more there, which is a lot given most sessions will sway between like 3,000 plus or minus a thousand lighter side, you know? Mm. So you could be very easily fooled into thinking, well, fuck. So it is, a, do, do I just do more accessories and get more reps and tonnage up? So obviously, you know, that doesn't work, you know? Or then you could look at this even, so you could maybe, okay, what if I get total tonnage more in lots of snatches and clean and jerks? But then, unfortunately, you know, you need to reps over 90% of the ones that are important. So it's total tonnage over 90%, you know, so you can you can have your metrics, you can have data and you can have, you know, principles of science or whatever. But if you can't apply them correctly, you end up with, you know, not getting better or even worse in some cases. Yeah, absolutely. I don't like the bar path thing is something we've come up against a lot. And like, it just happens when. I go around to weightlift or go around to CrossFit gyms if you're like on holidays or something and you always end I always end up talking about weightlifting. Gurf definitely ends up talking to nobody and just stays in the corner. But it always ends up where like people are talking about weightlifting and they'll be like, Oh, yeah, look, it happens. We just get out the we'll get out the iPad. They'll take it down from playing music or whatever, they'll video a client doing a lift and they'll show them that the bar is looping around their knees, you know. Realistically, they seeing that is valuable like Mm -hmm. them seeing that has value they might be able to do it with just like a verbal cue or kinesthetic cue where they'll stop doing it a lot of time though for like bar looping around the knees it's like they have a weakness somewhere they're not allowing their knees to get back out of the way because their back and hamstrings are too weak and that kind of vertical shin position feels weak for them if their shoulders are in front of the bear that's like that's what the art is for me mm-hmm. the art is being able to be like no 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 like this is a this is a symptom of a problem it's not the problem itself and even if you're a weightlifter and like snatch and clean and jerks your main thing so you think the bear looping on the snatch is the problem it's just a symptom of the system being weak somewhere and like it's it's being able to relay that that symptomology back into an actual problem and then being able to program around that problem like how do you make someone's back stronger in that specific position well you can get them to loads of lifts which will be really fatiguing and might alter their overall motor pattern for the snatch which wouldn't be good or you could do like snatch grip rdls to a deficit and make them light enough yet heavy enough and have enough volume whereby they can get a training adaptation but not affect their training overall I think for people, you know, especially for coaches or any athlete trying to coach themselves, like accruing knowledge is probably the most important thing you could do while still training. So, you know, if you are, so for example, if you were a sports science graduate or whatever, or an SNC coach, or you did whatever your qualification was, so you would have the base of knowledge, but then you need to go get as much experience as possible. So you just do, you bring up your deficits of either one. So if you have a lot of coaching experience, you should probably, you know, try and educate yourself fairly routinely on new subjects you know and have both you know it's very very important to have both so theoretical stuff because a lot of stuff you know weightlifting where i would have read a book and going from the book to application you know can take a bit of time but it does end up proving very useful and some of that stuff would not have been cleared up had i never read some of the information or some of the literature you know so it is very very important to have both of them if, especially if you're a sparring coach if you're an individual at least it can't very hard you know because experimenting yourself is is very difficult yeah i think that's you remember we spoke earlier you said is there any papers that i've seen that would like alter my coaching process like one that's after coming to my mind is the kazakh paper 
And it's not so much that like the Kazakh paper on like power and in their weightlifters and how they used to coach them. It's not mm-hmm. that it's changed my perception of like, oh, I should be doing this with weightlifters or we should change our weightlifting programs to do this. It's more like in our discussion of it, being like, geez, it's interesting they did that. Why do you think they did this? Like it's discussing these, like discussing this knowledge and discussing these findings is where I get most value from it. I wonder, um, <coughs> would it be long before we'll see any kind of investigatory science in CrossFitters? And probably another probably decade or more before it'll be given kind of the academics will give them kind of credence to do some kind of investigative work and see value for a paper like a paper that would have impact or a paper that would be noteworthy. I know there's it would some be interesting to injury see. stuff done with CrossFitters, um, which... It, like the, the funny story about this paper is it was done in California as far as I remember so definitely somewhere in the west coast of the states and they were doing an injury study on crossfitters and they mm-hmm. couldn't get enough they couldn't get enough people to finish the study so they <laughs> were tracking crossfitters for six months and they all got injured I don't know like, oh, I don't know how they did their their participant selections but anyway they all got injured and they couldn't do proper stats on it so it became like a uh, I don't even know. Was it like I was reading like a an out for published copy of it, um, but it, it was funny. It just became a narrative paper because they couldn't do um, they couldn't actually do any analysis on it. The injury papers, just as a comment, knows there. If you ever read any injury papers, it's so funny. And if you read one in two thousand or you read one in twenty twenty one, they'll all say desperately need more research and application <laughs> it's so funny it's so fucking funny like because it's such a hard one to it no one knows like no one has good ways of rehabbing things it's so fucking i was reading one on like knee uh, tendinopathy and like i think it was like 2002 when they were talking about return return to play and they had a very well very well documented system about returning people to play and the exercises you do and whatever you're doing them in and then 20 years later, it was like still people trying to do this stuff. And all of them are literally saying, you know, in other studies, you'll see um, more research needed before validated or whatever. Yeah, the, yeah. the injury ones are like desperately in need of more research <laughs> to clear up. Like, it's so funny how like injury rehab hasn't progressed. Like you have great practitioners like, you know, Aaron from Scott University or, yeah. you know, Fairness Galley Starrett or, and there's loads of those lads like, insert barbell physio or barbell fucking physiotherapist or whatever, yeah. the strength physio, you Functional know. Functional physio. And they're they're great practitioners, I yeah. imagine. A lot of them know what they're doing, and I bet you they help a lot of people. But if you were to give someone a course on rehab, it's um, you you couldn't give a definitive educational program. Um, yeah, I remember our we did a module in like third or fourth year on uh, injury rehabilitation, you know. And the guy giving it, to be fair, now is like a practicing physiotherapist who's also a lecturer, and mm-hmm. he was like, "Lads, like your curriculum." He was like, this is the curriculum that I did when I was doing physiotherapy, like however many years ago. He was like, this isn't what people do anymore, but it's kind of the same thing that people do. But like the the, the conflict here is right. It, it's the same as like clinical trials um, with drugs and stuff is that when you're doing and like ethical procedures for scientific studies mean that you can't like you can't ethically give somebody a treatment that you think to be deficient like you can't you can't do an acl tear study right and say okay we <laughs> induce have... acl tears well you can't induce the acl tears is the first thing so they're all slightly different that the operations might have all gone slightly different ways mm-hmm. but you also can't go like okay the um these guys aren't getting anything these guys now are going to get growth hormone and BPC-157, but these people are getting nothing. We're injecting water into their knees. Like, mm-hmm. that's where it falls because you have a duty of care to give people the best care possible. And when there's medical stuff involved and you're trying to yeah. get people, like, in fucking neck injuries, you can't be like, I wonder what happens if they were to do planks in their neck for six months. <laughs> like, the other crowd yeah. are going to do their normal rehab that's scientifically proven, but um, yeah. luck of the draw. Joe, like, yeah. that's the problem with injuries is they're all so different. And then you can't just not fucking treat people or you can't give somebody like, I wonder what happens if we rubbed Coca-Cola into their wounds for a month. You yeah, know, yeah. like you, you can't get oh. super novel with it. So we're going to soak your neck in flat, <laughs> flat Coca-Cola for four hours every day. And then we're going to see what happens. <laughs> the, the weird part then about um, 
injury rehab is spontaneous recovery. So they all of that like injury rehab literature will talk about spontaneous recovery. And it's literally that's all they can call it because sometimes people just get better and they'll walk away and you'll be like, yeah. Fuck, what worked, you know? Um a lot of treatments like that in kind of nebulous kind of medical things where spontaneous recovery happens. So everyone has their own treatment because it works a lot of the time with placebo effects. So no one really investigates the source effect. So you have um just literally spontaneous recovery or placebo effect works. No one's looking at why that happens, but yeah, recovery happens. So they're like, well, this is the treatment I use. And then, you know, you get that kind of people arguing over spine flexion and deadlifts or not spine flexion or whatever. Yeah. I like here, if you're looking for a, an area of study where that happens all the time is like sports psychology or performance psychology or a organizational psychology. Cause you'll have, you'll have your two or three or four different groups and you're doing different interventions with all of them. And one group might have like notably better, notably better outcomes, right? So you might have like, uh, you might have people diagnosed with uh, generalized anxiety disorder, so GAD, and you have four possible interventions. You have a control group and one intervention group might do so much better, right? So you might have like a fucking, a mindfulness intervention where they come in and they do mindfulness once a day or they do mindfulness remotely. The job then of the academic, so the the job of the applicator, like the the clinical psychologist or whoever is dealing with this, is to look at these papers and say like, okay, this is what happened. I'm going to use mindfulness and some other combination of the other control groups or the other intervention groups because this had a good effect. This had a good effect when combined with that. That's what the job of the applicator does. So the the clinical psychologist. But the person who's writing that study then has to come up with a realistic discussion for why this happened. Like, as strength coaches, if we see a study and sets of 10 make people stronger than sets of two, we just apply the sets of 10. We don't need to think about that. And I think that's where people get caught up is like, they get caught up in the reason of like, why? The reason of why is important for the person who writes the paper, right? They need that 1200 word piece at the end called the discussion where they reasonably postulate over mindfulness working better than meditation because people get more anxious when they're meditating you know you know it's just i think people do get caught up in this is like you need to be able to discuss literature read literature interact with the literature in a way whereby you're getting something out of it and then apply that effectively you don't necessarily like as a sports scientist or as a coach or as whatever as an athlete you don't really need to know what's going on you need to understand what's good and what's bad but you don't mm -hmm. need to worry about the mechanism of action right now there's a lot to it <laughs> just doing the right thing mostly will get you as much as where you can possibly get it say yeah you, know, you just need to do there's definitely better ways of going about things and there's definitely more efficient ways, you know, so you've like an effective way is a way that definitely works and an effective way would be the Bulgarian method, but an efficient way would be something like, um, Misa Asana's, you know, mm -hmm. in a one kind of case where mm -hmm. it's very efficient and it's very, it's as efficient as humanly possible. There's no wasted kind of very nuanced. training. Of yeah. So drugs work, I suppose is, is the main <laughs> thing. <laughs> and uh um that's about it really so you know like you don't need a coach um <laughs> don't, need a, drugs. don't need a coach don't need a program uh <laughs> you anything to tell people uh if you like the podcast give us mm -hmm. a five star rating on whatever you're listening to it on we're we're back to five star rating on iTunes. Can we just nice. get more ratings if you listen on iTunes? Could you yeah. just give us a rating? So just rate us. It just looks nice if we have more ratings. Um, if you're on Spotify, could you just follow the podcast as well? That helps as well. And okay. then I don't think uh, they're literally like the only two things you can do for the podcast. Or share it in your story is a big thing. We like when people do that. It's very helpful. If you're interested in consultancy, so we do consultancy. Uh, we also do one-to-one -one coaching and we also do our block programs, which probably everyone's has heard of at this stage. Go to seekerstrength.com, go to the store. You can see it there. You can contact us through the website as well, which just gets popped straight over to our email. Or you can send us an email at seekerstrength.com. Um, <clears throat> 
if you if you own a gym as well yeah and you, you were kind of if you were ever thinking about getting them for seminars you know staff or athletes um you know reach out to us and we can have a chat as well so you know some gyms have um obviously you don't know but if you're thinking about it later near you ever wanted us to get out just you know send us an email seekingstrength.gmail.com and we'll have a chat we can have a zoom call or whatever for free you know we can just talk about things if you if it's something you ever wanted to think about wherever you are we'll go it's literally it's a great time to be starting that plan as well because we're working on it with other gyms at the moment and we're just making sure that curriculum is lining up with them so in terms of like staff training or even like member education pieces uh it would be great if we can get this working on that as soon as possible yeah um we'll go anywhere literally <laughs> anywhere except Turkmenistan except Turkmenistan um but anywhere else we will go there maybe not South America no we go to South America would we oh Jesus we'd love to go to South America yeah okay thanks guys thanks for listening <laughs>